I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your guide to the whitetail woods. Presented by First Light, creating proven, versatile hunting apparel for the stand, saddle, or blind. First Light, go farther, stay longer. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. This week on the show, I'm running Jared Mills through our What Would You Do gauntlet giving us insight into exactly how he'd handle some of the most challenging deer hunting scenarios I could throw at him. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by First Light and our Camo for Conservation initiative, which means every purchase of First Light gear in the Spectre pattern, which is the whitetail camo pattern, a percentage of every single one of those sales goes to the National Deer Association, helping support their mission to make things better for deer and deer hunters, and they're doing a good job of it. I actually was with a bunch of the guys from the NDA just last weekend, way up there in Idaho, for one of our Working for Wildlife Tour events. I'm sure you've heard all about it, but uh, we have had some great opportunities so far to volunteer on public land, improve habitat for wildlife, and uh, that was certainly a good example of it. There was, I think, more than 50 volunteers. We improved some aspen stand habitat, which a lot of whitetails and elk and other critters are going to benefit from. Man, we had a good time doing it too. So kudos to the NDA. And uh, speaking of working for wildlife tour events, we've got another one coming up this weekend. If you are in Missouri, we are going to be getting together. This coming Saturday, that's Saturday, August 12th, uh, down the BK Leach Memorial Conservation Area. We're going to be doing some habitat improvement out there. That's just outside of St. Louis, Missouri, I believe. So love to see you 8 a.m. Saturday morning at the BK Leach Memorial Conservation Area. This is in partnership with Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. We're going to do some good work for wildlife and then later that afternoon get together for a social events, some storytelling, 
Uh, should be great. You can sign up over on the BHA website. They've got an events page there for it where you can register. Hope to see you there. I guess in other news, since we're talking news, uh, this past weekend, so two weekends ago was the Working for Wildlife Tour event in Idaho. This most recent weekend, I was down in southern Michigan for the Field to Fork program at the Back 40, which has been such a cool thing to see grow over the last couple of years. And this year we introduced, I think, 13 or 14 new hunters this past Saturday um, to this whole hunting lifestyle. So we got to spend the day with them, um, giving them experience behind a rifle and a crossbow, answering all sorts of questions about hunting, taking them for a tour of the property, talking through different you know deer behavior and habitat and strategy questions. And then there will be a whole series of hunts happening this fall in the early season and late season where there will be specific partners or sorry, mentors partnered up with each one of these new hunters. Uh, and it's very cool to see the back 40 property being used for that. So uh, that's what I was doing this past Saturday. That was a lot of fun. And um, other than that, we do have a podcast episode to get to, which I know you guys are chomping at the bit for. And it's a good one. We're continuing our What Would You Do series, which is uh, this thing we do every August. Hopefully you heard last week with Bobby Kendall. Uh, what we're doing is running our guests through a series of specific hypothetical hunting scenarios to see what they would do and why they would do it. And today's guest is Jared Mills. He is a great deer hunter who just came off of a really, really great hunting season. And he's got some insights, some ideas, some perspectives that I think we can all learn from and apply to our own hunting situations. Uh, Jared's over there in Iowa. He is probably most known for his participation in the Midwest Whitetail Series for a really, really long time. I don't know, probably a decade or more. Uh, he's now doing his own thing. He's got his own YouTube channel. You can find that just by searching Jared Mills over on YouTube. And uh, he documented his hunting season last year on that channel. And it got a lot of interest and buzz because he had one heck of a year and showcased it all really well there on the channel. So if you haven't seen those videos, you got to check it out. He killed uh, three really great deer on video, told some great stories. Um, so definitely worth checking out. And I think that'll give you some really good context either before listening to this or after listening to this. But that's the plan. We're talking to Jared. I'm going to run him through a whole bunch of different situations, see what he would do with them out there in the whitetail woods. And uh, man, we had fun. I learned some stuff. I got some good ideas and it got me even more excited for this coming season. I'm out there scouting bean fields, seeing some nice deer. The hit list is starting to fill up here in Southern Michigan, which is exciting. And uh, can't wait to share some of those stories with you too. So that will be for another day though. For now, Let's get to Jared Mills. We're running them through the What Would You Do gauntlet, and here we go. All right, with me now on the line, I've got the one and only Jared Mills. Jared, thanks for making time for this. Absolutely, man. It's good to chat again, and appreciate the invite. Yeah, this is uh, this month of August for the last few years has become this month when I do this series where we run people through these hypothetical scenarios and it ends up being maybe my favorite month of the year as far as the podcast, just because you get to geek out alongside, you know, you the guest, I get to geek out on thinking through every one of these different scenarios too. It's, it's kind of like 
when you're sitting there with your hunting buddies or I do this thing where we take road trips where we're going to go to hunt Ohio or some different state and there'll be me or another friend or two in the car and we'll just sit there for hours on the highway and be like, what would you do if this happened? Or what would you do if a split brow tine and a drop time buck came in at the same time? Like, what would you shoot? Like all those kinds of things. So, yeah. so basically I'm, I'm taking my road trip game and applying it to, uh, to work with you, Jared. So, uh, that's, that's perfect. I love the idea. I think obviously it's a great way for, for listeners to learn, but I think at least from my perspective, the coolest part is it just points out how many different ways there are to do things. I mean, especially if you're offering very similar or the same situations to each different person, I mean, I I'm willing to bet most of your answers are are pretty different. So I I think it just speaks to, um, you got to know your own hunting situations, your own properties, your own deer, whatever it is, all the, all the factors that you have to deal with specifically before you are able to make those decisions on what to do. And, And this series to me, really highlights that yeah it's a great it's a great point and it is funny though and i don't know if you've experienced this but i I bet you have given how many different hunters you've worked with at midwest whitetail and and through all those different things you know there's, there's so many successful guys and gals out there like you said they all do it in different ways but maybe 50 percent of them think their way is the only way still you know what I mean? Like there's some oh. people that are, that are so dead set on like, oh, this is the only way to do it. Um, I'm shocked yeah. by that still. Like how many people are so set in that, you know, perspective? Um, well, but, I mean, if, if they don't know anything else and they, you know, maybe don't branch out on a lot of different situations, they're probably right. I mean, what, what they're used to on their home turf is probably the right way for them. But um, yeah, and I think part of it's just the world we live in too. You know, I think everyone yeah. kind of wants to be the expert on it and, you know, wants to be the source of that type of information. So I'm sure that plays into it. Yeah. I think there's some truth to that. Uh, before we get into the, you know, the, the scenarios here, you know, given your kind of life changes over recent years, I know there's been some career shifts. You've got a young child, one or two? One. One, yep. Okay. One, one um, so w- if you were to look back over, say, like the last decade or so um, up to now, what has been the biggest change for you? Like if we're talking about how there's so many different ways to do this, is there is there some major difference for you as far as how your life has or, or circumstances or anything has led to a shift in your strategies or, or style of hunting? Anything like that come to mind? Yeah, I think the biggest one that comes to mind, and, and I probably would shorten that time frame down, you know, 10 years is a long time. I'd, I'd look at maybe less few years. But for me, it's really trying to keep the enjoyment of it first and foremost, because there's so many things we can get wrapped up on that the world of hunting is changing so rapidly and continuing to evolve. Technology is coming into play so much. Um, the amount of information available, social media, all that type of stuff has really changed what <clears throat> what hunting is when I think about what it used to be growing up and when I was cutting my teeth on learning how to bow and all that type of stuff. Mm-hmm. It seems like it's such a, a different experience now than it was. And I think for me, my eyes have been opened up like it doesn't have to be that way. I think that's the biggest thing that, that's you know been a revelation for me is – Hey, you can make it harder on yourself. And and I don't want that to sound wrong. I don't want it to seem like it's gotten too easy because it certainly hasn't. Um, 
but there are obviously things you can do to make it easier or harder on yourself if you want to. You need to figure out what's best for your experience. And for me, it's just don't get don't mix hunting too much with work. Don't put stress on yourself. You have to kill a deer. Don't you know all those types of things. Get back to the enjoyment of hunting and what it felt like way back when. Um, I think that's that's I've been lucky to have come across that and, and bring that into focus more. And that's certainly going to be a goal of mine, you know, here in the new fu- near future and hopefully for a long time. And hopefully, you know, hopefully I can help hunters along the way with different tactics and strategies and stuff. But if, if nothing else, you know, I want to just bring that awareness to guys that you can make this experience what you want it to uh, by doing things your own way and you don't have to do what everyone else is doing. Yeah. I, I, I couldn't relate more to that. I mean, over the last two years, I've, I've kind of gone through that same sort of epiphany where I reached like a, a mega burnout stage where I just felt all this pressure because like you mentioned, it was tied up in work and expectations and worrying yeah. about what other people think and yada, yada, yada. And all that stuff was like sucking the fun out of it for me. So last yeah. season, like my main goal is like, okay, I got to just shove aside any of the stuff that's bringing me down. Like any of the things that are taking this thing that I love so much and making it miserable for me sometimes like that's, I can't have that anymore. And yeah. I just tried to like stop caring what other think, what other people think, stop caring about if I kill a big enough buck or enough deer or whatever it is, stop trying to impress people. Just do hunt your own hunt, enjoy it, do it for the right reasons and, you know, let the chips fall where they may. And lo and behold, I had a blast and still had like a, a great hunting season by, you know, all other uh, right. metrics too. And it's, it's funny how that probably works out in many cases. Once you just got, get your head back to normal, things work yeah. out. Yeah. And it's, I do, I think things fall into place when you prioritize it the right way. And even if they don't work out, you're going to be way less frustrated because you enjoyed the experience rather than, exactly. you know, stressing yourself out. So yeah, uh, that's, that's the page I'm on. I feel lucky to, be in a spot where I can see that um, because when you get to that perspective, you look back and you realize how silly it was to think otherwise or to yeah. make hunting this thing that we all have this crazy passion about mm-hmm. to make it not fun. Like it, it's, it just seems so silly looking back. Yeah. This is uh this is not brain surgery. This is not a life or death thing. We're not saving the world. Uh, nobody really yeah. cares whether we kill a big buck or not. Um, yeah. Do it for yourself. Have fun with it. And yeah. uh, that's the best you can do. So, yeah, so yeah that's right. I'm right there with you. So all that said, then let's add some pressure, though. <laughs> let's, let's put you in the let's put you through the gauntlet and uh, and see what you would do in these scenarios, because because uh, that's kind of fun sometimes, too. <laughs> yeah, sounds good. All right. So I think, you know, the basic rules, right? The idea here is, is walk me through your thought process once I present these scenarios to you, you know. The more details, the better, the more kind of behind the scenes, thinking out loud, the better. Um, and we're going to start kind of preseason and sort of work our way into different parts of the season itself. So my first question, my first scenario is going to be this. Let's say you get the very good news of picking up access to a brand new farm. So you just picked up something brand new. Let's just say it's going to be 100 acres to keep it simple. It's going to be Midwest, you know, Iowa, Illinois, Indiana kind of stuff, uh, mixed timber and ag. It's a hundred acre square and there's going to be a creek that runs snaking through the middle. All right. That's our property. What I'm curious about to start is how you would go about 
learning this place, scouting and learning it. And I'm, I'm curious what your process would be at different start points. So what I'm going to ask you to run me through is what your plan would be to learn this place if you got access on August 30th with an October okay. 1st opening date. So that's the first one. And then my second one after that, I'm going to be curious to hear what you would do differently if you didn't get access until October 1st itself. So, all right, August 30th, that's a few, you know, it's a couple of weeks from now as, as far as when we're recording this. You get to step foot on it for the first time, August 30th. You have about a month before opening day. Walk me through what you would do to learn this place fast with, with one month of go time. Okay. So yeah, August 30th is, it's earlier than October 1st, but still late in the game. <clears throat> you know, you're not really going to do any property improvements much at that point anyways. Um, so I always like to start big picture first, um, just to establish a starting point, I guess, on a new property and, and by big, big picture, of course, aerial maps, but uh, also, I think a focus on the neighborhood in general, especially when you mentioned it being, you know, a timber ag setup. Usually, there's destination food feeding areas or food sources for deer in that type of habitat. You know, big ag fields or or whatever. And, and I think by spending time looking at the general neighborhood, whether it's driving around the blocks, um, you know, looking at it aerially whatever, figure out where, or at least guess where the deer might be going to end up. Because I think having a general direction of movement on a property can give you a really good starting point on how to hunt it, you know, which way to come in, which way to go out, you know, where to focus <clears throat> potential stand setup. So I'll try to establish, you know, what are the deer doing each evening or each morning when they're either leaving their bed or coming back to bed um, by looking at the neighborhood. And then, of course, with it being August 30th, I'm still not worried about running deer off and them not coming back. Uh, so I'm going to spend a good amount of time with boots on the ground, walking the property, figuring out those things, either A, confirming what I found on the aerial map, or B, um, picking up those little things that you can't pick up on an aerial map, little pinches and things like that, whether it's, I mean, something as simple as a, a downed tree can create a, a really good pinch point. Uh, you're obviously not going to see that on an aerial map. Um, so boots on the ground to figure that type of stuff out. Um, I'll, you know, I'll try to figure out signs, not the most visible at that time of year, but I'll, I'll try to find uh, what would be some potential bedding areas. Cause if you can figure out, you know, maybe the, where the one, two or three, you know, on a hundred acres, um, the primary bedding areas that you're not going to want to go blowing into early, or again, it, it still gives you even more information with the, the general movement direction. So if they're going from this spot, you know, there's a really big ag field on the West side. That's probably their destination food source. You can figure out, okay, how are they going to get from point A to point B? Where can I put myself in the middle of that? Um, so I think those are probably the main things, of course, you know, getting some cameras out, uh, August 30th is a great time to start establishing mock scrapes. Um, so that coincides well with, with putting cameras out for the first time. There's a lot of properties that that's about the time I put cameras out anyways on properties I already have access to. So very, very good time to start getting inventory. Scrapes are my number one tool for inventory. Um, you know, I think that you learn a lot about deer just based on their interactions at scrapes. I think most of the mature bucks in the area will eventually come to that. So um, try to get as many cameras out on 
on mock scrapes to learn what deer in the area. So I think those are probably the main things. If I come across some really obvious stand locations, I may go ahead and hang one right away. Um, but more often than not on a new property, I don't get too crazy about getting those locations set up, at least not permanent locations. Um, I do a decent amount of moving around mobile type hunting, uh, even just small adjustments. It may be 50 yards. Um, but I, I, I have very few, even the properties that I have access to and hunted for years, I don't have a ton of permanent locations. And I think the primary reason for that is because I like targeting individual deer and they all seem to use the property a little bit different. Yes. You know, pinch points and funnels are still going to be there year after year, but um, each deer may use it a little bit differently depending on, on where he's bedding. Um, and just, just the individuality, the personalities of the bucks lead to different styles of hunting. You know, maybe some spots, if a buck is really callable, you're going to want to be in a location where you can see further and potentially call them in. You know, little examples like that, I think, uh, are the primary reason I don't get too crazy about permanent locations until I really learn a lot more than maybe I'll hang a stand and leave it up for the season and take it down after. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are kind of the first steps that I guess I would, uh, think about off the top of my head so two follow-ups uh first when you do that boots on the ground part is that like a one day thing or are you gonna be making multiple trips and checking it over the course of that month leading up to the season or would you have a cutoff date like i don't want to walk any sooner than september 15th because it's too close to the opener anything like that um i don't know that i would have a cutoff date prior to the season unless i found a deer i wanted to hunt and he was there then that's where i'm probably gonna you know be a lot more careful um but if there as long as there's still more for me to learn by walking around and looking i'm gonna keep doing it Uh, until i feel like okay i've got a really good idea of how this farm sets up how the deer use it now i'll make adjustments based on what i see from the stand that's when you know i'll call it good but during that time period, August 30th, October 1st, um, unless there's a deer I want to kill right away and that he's living in there, I'm not too afraid of impacting my fall based on going in and out. And, you know, it's it's similar to hunting. Like you mentioned, the creek going through the middle of property. I'm still going to try to be smart about access. If, if, if I can go in and check an area out, with the wind in my face, I'll do it. If I can use that Creek to get in initially and then pop up and and check an area out, I'll do it. So, you know, I guess there's maybe a little bit of a difference there between being like super aggressive and, you know, just sloppy. You know, I I, want to learn as much as I can, but maybe with a a few precautions taken. Yeah. Yeah. I follow you. Um, so last one on that piece, uh, hundred acre new property. How many cameras would you be putting up to try like get an idea of what's happening there? Um, I would say due to, you know, my primary use of cameras is for inventory. I'm not always trying to figure out every hunting specific piece of information that I can from trail cameras. I just want to know that there's a good deer around. I don't need to know is every step on the property, um, in fact, I'd rather not know, to be honest, uh, you know, I'd rather, you know, figure it out based on other factors, but, uh, I would say hundred acre property, you know, maybe half a dozen cameras. 
to start out with. Um, and that's just trying to kind of cast a net, you know, maybe six to eight cameras to cast a wider net just to, uh, and during that initial time frame. But, you know, in theory, if you have them on good scrape locations, good travel locations, um, you're going to get most of the deer on that property, you know, for inventory purposes on one of those six cameras. Yep. Okay. Now let's say same scenario, except you don't get access on the 30th of August. You get access on opening day of bow season, October 1st. So in that case, how do you approach things differently? Are you just going to start hunting it from the outside in? Or are you going to blast in there and still learn it all early and then plan hunting late? Like what's, what's your take then? No, I'm going to be a lot more careful at that time frame for sure. Um, again, I'll, I'll still try to learn as much as I can. I just won't try to cover every square inch. So if I do go in on a hunt, again, potentially using that creek for access, depending on the exact situation and wind direction, um, I've done it a lot where I'll, I'll sit for a morning hunt or something and then just slowly maybe take a longer route out, just see what I can learn, see what I can see. But the reality is October 1st, a lot of my learning is probably going to be, be coming from tree stand observations and, and, you know, just sits um, and adjusting from there. Um, you can get, you can learn a lot whether you see a target buck or not from a hunt, you know, again, back to the general movement, a lot of times you'll, you'll see whether it's a movement, uh, an evening hunt or a morning hunt, you're going to see which direction most of the deer are moving. Uh, you know, it, it changes a little bit once you get to the rut time frame, November time frame, and the, the cruising becomes a little more random directionally, but, um, you know, that early October time frame, that stuff is relatively consistent and, and that can give you a lot of information on that property. Yeah. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time, Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. And it's really simple. When you pour it into your gas tank, seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can into your gas tank and let it do its job. 
Now you probably know someone who's used a can of seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. Because people everywhere rely on it to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. So help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. Market House has the cleanest, leanest, juiciest meat and seafood shipped to your home overnight. Expect the service of a local butcher and the convenience of a large supplier. Yeah, and Market House provides everything from grass-fed beef to free-range chicken, Mm. grass-fed lamb, and even wild-caught king crab and seafood. Market House keeps small farm values, trusted sources, and clean mouth-watering food for your family. And like I said, Market House ships all orders overnight. Order today, enjoy tomorrow. And you can even keep the camo on for dinner, even if the filet mignon is on the table. With Market House, it doesn't matter because the cuts and catches come straight to your door. Unlike many online butchers, you can grab just one meal's worth or lock in for a subscription box. And everybody knows how hard it is these days to find high-quality, sustainably sourced meat and seafood at their local grocery store. Choose from grass-fed and grass-finished beef, American Wagyu, free-range poultry, grass-fed lamb, wild-caught king crab, seafood, and more. For 15% off your first order, use code COUNTRY at checkout. Just visit markethouse.com. That's M-A-R-K-E-T-H-O-U-S-E dot com. And use the code COUNTRY. All right. uh, Let's kind of continue on with this property, let's say. And for whatever reason, you're scouting your way into a spot or, or something. You're moving your way through the property and you stumble on an area that screams out like big buck bedroom to you, like alarm bells start going off in your head and you say, holy smokes, I'm in the bedroom. Mm-hmm. What would it take? Like describe to me what would it take to see for you to think that. So like paint for me a picture of what that kind of place would have to be to set off those alarm bells for you. And then number two, what would you do in that situation? Cause let's say it's October sometime in October. And now you've stumbled into a big buck bedroom. You're seeing something that makes you think, Oh wow, I'm in the thing. What do you do next? Or how do you use that information if you're not going to do anything immediately with it? Yeah. <clears throat> so I guess the first part of the question, you know, a location that I w- that would come to mind, especially if the property has some topography to it, would be a higher point where a buck can see in multiple directions, um, but is, is somewhat protected by thick cover. A lot of times I find those locations um, really close to where, you know, let's say maybe it's a, it's a spot with a, with a bunch of briars or some type of really thick protective cover, but it's on the edge of where it opens up. So you, you might have, you basically that's where, what creates the visibility for them is, you know, they're protected, but they can see through, um, see, you know, danger, see other deer, whatever. Uh, of course, a lot of big rubs would, would help um, give that spot away. Um, the other thing too, it just seems like a lot of mature bucks are very off on their own. So if I'm seeing a bunch of other, you know, a bunch of beds together or something like that, I'm, I'm usually going to guess that's not a spot where a mature buck is bedding. It's usually a spot that's not overloaded with deer sign in general. Um, it's going to have, you know, signs specific to him, but it's not going to be, uh, you know, crazy traffic as far as uh, just the deer herd in general. So I think those three things are the, the first ones I think about. 
It is important. That location is important to me during the October timeframe, for sure. I think, you know, the month of October is usually your better opportunity to kill a local resident mature buck. Um, of course, they're going to be day, very daylight active through November, but it's, it's hard to figure out where they're going to be. They could be miles away. Just There's just so many random factors are out of your control where if, as if he's living there and consistent and you catch him before a bunch of does come into estrus um that's it's good to know exactly where he's bedding and coming and going to so yeah that information is definitely important how i would hunt it i've never be, been big on trying to dive right into that core area i think i think they're there for a reason and i think that the reason is it's hard to get to um, mm-hmm. you know, I'd rather just know it and hunt, intercept him to where he's going. Um, but knowing is a big piece of that puzzle, right? You know, just not, I just don't want to hunt right on it. Um, so if I know, Hey, the doe bedding area is over here, as we get towards late October, um, he's going to be looking for that. Usually he's going to be the one that gets that first estrus doe on that property, that local doe, um, he's going to be going and checking this more and more regular as we get to the last couple of weeks of October. Um, that's really good to know the, even like I was talking earlier, the destination food source is really good to know, but, um, yeah, it's, it's an important piece of information, but I don't typically get in the habit of hunting right on that location. Does, does it change things at all? If you saw the buck, like get up out of his bed and run away. So if you actually bumped the buck out of its bed, you see he's a he's a target deer. Would that change any part of that? And would you have, you know, if you were going to try to hunt that deer now, how would that impact the timing of when you would try to hunt him again? It wouldn't affect the timing. Um, and I'll, I'll give you an example and explain why. But the first part of the question, I think it, it doesn't change it. It confirms it for me. It's like, okay, this, this is where he's at. And usually it's going to confirm like, okay, it was hard to get into. I bumped him, you know, trying or, or accidentally bumped him, but, um, kind of the same thing there. It does not. I think these deer, especially in this area, farm country, whatever, they get bumped a lot more often than we know about. I would rather bump them walking in or doing some type of activity as opposed to spooking them from the tree stand um, by being sloppy with wind direction or movement or something like that. Um, I I can think of an example. It's been a few years now, but I was hunting a target buck. I did not know this was a property that was pretty homogenous. And so it didn't have like what I would call designated bedding areas. There's a lot of really good bedding areas and it, they seem to bounce around quite a bit. Even, even the mature buck, he still bedded on his own, but it just, it just seemed to be a little bit random. Um, so anyway, I was walking in to try a new spot, tree stand on my back, you know, sticks, everything, just a, a, a hanging hunt. And I bumped him. And of course you had that feeling of kind of devastation you know, man, that was a deer I came in for. And there's also a little bit of you that's like, I should just go home now, right? Mm-hmm. Like, what am I doing here? Um, but instead, I, I sat down. I mean, I, I, was, I was definitely upset, don't get me wrong. But I sat down and just thought about where would he go? Where is he going right now? You know, where is he running to? When is he going to stop running? When is he going to settle down? 
And so I made the move on the entire opposite side of the property. And um, actually, there was a, another tree stand already set up. So it wasn't a complete hang and hunt. But I hopped in that tree stand where I had good visibility on a, a really thick area that I thought he could have ran to. And sure enough, he came out. He was one of the first deer that came out that evening. Uh, didn't get a shot at him. Never worked his way into bow range. You know, probably 60 yards is probably the closest he got. But I got to watch him do his thing. He uh, ended up getting with a doe. And, um, but that was one of the first eye-opening experiences for me. Like, he was completely fine. I mean, it, it was mm-hmm. it would have been like if I picked the right spot and he got up out of his bed and came. I mean, he acted no different. And this was only probably an hour, hour and a half after jumping out of his, jumping him out of his bed. So um, I, I think we tend to think we ran, run a buck into the next county. And more often than, than not, that's not the case. Um, I'm not saying every time you're going to have a situation like I just laid out. But uh, the reality is I think they forget about some of that, some of those types of spooking activities faster than we think. Yeah, man, what a good feeling that must have been, though, when you had to, you had that like low point where you bumped him, you're all bummed out and then you made the pivot and then that like that was right. You made the right call yeah. and there he was. I mean, that must yeah. have been. Must have been I, a good feeling. At, at first, I was like, man, I'm going to kill this thing. Like, there's <laughs> the, what a crazy story this is, right? The jump of him and then, you know, it was yeah. probably, a, uh, I don't know, 500 yard, 400 to 500 yard move from where I, he was initially bedded to where he came out that night. So he went a decent ways, but I obviously have no way of knowing how quick he settled down. Like, you know, did he run for a hundred yards and then just meander the rest of the way? Or did he run hard for a few hundred yards? Um, Hard to say, but you know, nonetheless, it was, it was a cool learning experience for me. Yeah, but okay. Let's um, shift to, one of your longtime properties. Let's say like, I I know you bought a new farm last year. I think it was. So let's say we're there maybe. And let's say we're going into the season. You've got your target bucks that made it back. Uh, You've done all these food plots and TSI. You've done all this work. You've got stands prepped or trees prepped or ideas in place. You've done the work. You have a strategy laid out. You're just counting down the days till opening day. And then let's say, a week before opening day, a few days before opening day, all of a sudden, like a, a mega giant starts showing up on trail camera, like a brand new buck you've never seen before, never heard of this deer before. And he's like multiple levels above anything else you have on the farm. Like he's a world-class deer. He'd be your biggest ever. He's really, really special. A deer that in your mind, you all of a sudden say, whoa, I have to, I have to focus on him and him alone. In that scenario... What do you do now? It's September 26th or 7th or something like that. How do you try to close in on him or learn something fast or shift cameras or shift plans to now figure out this brand new specific buck, but with zero background or history? So first of all, I hope you're speaking this into existence here with this scenario. (laughs) Yes, Um, I'll cross my fingers for you. (laughs) uh, No, I don't know that it would change a whole lot for me because with it being so close to the season, I'm not going to move a ton of cameras around and being a property that I know pretty well already, I know the best camera locations, right? That's where I'm, that's, that's where I'm going to get most of my information. My property is not 
I mean, it's, it's not big enough to where, <clears throat> you know, it's a hundred acres. So it, it's not big enough to where I'm going to completely change where I have cameras. I need to add a bunch of new cameras to try to get this information. Um, you know, I already have cameras in the, the pinches on some of the best scrapes, etc. So from that standpoint, I don't think it's going to change a whole lot for, for me. Um, and I have a good idea of how the deer use the property. Um, I think it's just going to be more or less monitoring, you know, if he stays around. I mean, normally you get some deer like that, that, um, you don't know, it could be a really small window that he's usually utilizing your property and he can be gone, um, back to where he came from. Uh, so I guess having said that, maybe I'll be a little bit more aggressive early to take advantage of him being on the property. Um, you know, sometimes you're able to take information you learn about a deer from previous years, you know, knowing when he shows up, knowing what he does on during certain stretches of the season and apply it. Obviously, that's not the case here. Um, so I think that probably would, as I'm kind of thinking through it, I, I probably would be a lot more aggressive than I had planned to be initially on that property with some of the other target deer. All right. Opening day arrives. And you have a plan in place. You are walking to the tree stand that you either have prepped or the tree that you've got ready for your hanging hunt or whatever it is. And you have a strong reason for going there. You feel great about the wind. You feel great about your access. You're going there for a reason. And then, you know, like you're, you're about to start walking down that trail. And then you get the ping on your phone. And we're going to say it's uploads on your cell camera from the night previous. And so now all of a sudden you're looking at all the pictures and you see the night before this buck was somewhere totally different the night before. Do you chase that cell cam picture from the night before or do you stick with your original plan and reasons you had for that? I think initial plan. Um, two things. First, my, the, the property that I have and that we're playing the scenario out on isn't big enough to completely go relocate but but two from the night before they can cover so much ground in that time frame you know in in a day or half a day or whatever it is um i think in that situation i'm gonna trust my gut i had a plan in place um i never really like to make a lot of adjustments off cell cam photos anyways for for a variety of reasons um but especially in that scenario i'm going with my gut there's you know that could have been a one-off deal that he was over there. It, it could have, and maybe I'll, I'll be wrong. Um, I won't see him and I should have made that move, but I'll, I'll take those odds every time that my plan was solid enough uh, to outweigh one single trail cam photo. Yeah. All right. Now let, in, instead of it being a cell cam picture, let's say instead the night before the opener, you sat out somewhere and glassed. Let's say there's a hill or, or somewhere where you can get a good visibility of some areas. And you get eyes on this buck on the night before the opener. You see him do something, come out to one of your little food plots or something and feed in daylight. Um, very exciting to see. Great piece of information to get. The next day, though, the wind isn't going to be the same. So let's say it's going to go from, a, I don't know, from like a north wind on the night when you saw him to a west wind the next day do you push in there and hunt him with the different wind 
because you don't care about what the wind was as long as you can safely hunt it? Or is that shift in wind direction going to make you predict him showing up somewhere different based on that? I think I'm probably going to not shy away from him doing that again, just based on the wind switch. I think he may access it differently based on the different wind direction. But I think if that's where he wants to be during that time, I mean, who knows what, maybe it's a freshly picked cornfield or something that's, I mean, those super hot for four or five days, they're going to be there. You know, maybe, maybe they'll wait till closer to dark or after dark, or maybe they'll just access it a little bit differently so they can have a quartering wind or wind in their face or whatever it may be. But I, I still think that's where, if that's where he was, that's where he wants to be for a certain reason. And, and that time frame, that Oct- October time frame, usually isn't a random reason. You know, it, it's something. It's usually food source related or whatever. Um, so I think I'm gonna I'm gonna take my chances if, and this is a big if, if I can get in clean with whatever wind direction that is. I'm not. I'm gonna consider that way higher than I am. Is he gonna use it just because it's a different wind direction? Yeah. So you mentioned if you can get in clean, what if the wind's risky? What if it's a situation like, man, he was just here and conditions are still good, except the wind now, you know, maybe there's like a 50, 50 chance. Now you, you're not exactly sure where he's bedded. If he happens to be here a little South, you're screwed. If he happens to be a little North, you're golden. Uh, do you still swing for the fences that night or what do you do then? Yeah, that's a good question. I think, the obvi- the answer would be very obvious to me if um, this wasn't a deer that was completely random and maybe gone right away. If it was a, a really good deer, a shooter deer, but I had confidence he was going to stay and at least be around somewhat throughout the month, I would not push it that early in the season. I would I would not risk um, messing something up there. But the the kicker to it is this in the scenario it's this deer that literally you have no information on and could be gone and that may make me be a little more aggressive there but i think if i had to pick one thing i probably wouldn't push it on a 50 50 on october 1st or 2nd whatever day we're talking about um i think i'll I'll take my chances he'll be around a little bit longer for a safer hunt okay all right so i hate to tell you this but we're gonna erase the mega giant off the table he's no longer part of the scenario we're starting a new place new situation uh i'm just gonna assume you killed that buck all right he's dead he's on the wall um let's say it is mid-october this is like a controversial time of year people either love to say it's horrible or they love to give shit to people who say it's horrible right right um so let's say it's october 14th and there's a cold front pushing through overnight so the next morning the lows are going to be like 20 or 30 degrees cooler than they were yesterday, the 14th. Uh, and then your evening lows again are going to be cold. So let's say it went from like a 70 degree day in the 14th to now it's going to be like in the 40s, maybe 40s, 50s, yep. something like that. So we're talking like the first big cold, big cold front of October, but it's happening, you know, October 15th that morning. Let's say you don't have any daylight pictures of your shooter box yet. Let's say you have, you know, you had some target deer you're after, but they have not been daylighting yet, um, or at least haven't been daylighting maybe since like early October. Maybe you had a couple of things that are going early. It didn't work out. Now we're in mid-October with this situation. First big cold front. 
Are you hunting October 15th that morning or that evening because of the big cold front? Are you taking a stab at one of your target bucks given that weather front? Or are you still playing a conservative because there's no daylight activity and you're waiting till later in the month or, or anything else? What would you do in that scenario? Uh, I'd be hunting for sure. You only have a few of those days during that October October time frame, and they're they're as good as they they get. Um, so you have to be in your best spots on those days. Um, now, you know, I I have multiple permission properties in, in different places I help manage and hunt. I'm gonna go to the one where I have the most likely chance. You talk about not having any bucks daylighting. I'm probably gonna go to where I at least have one close, you know, maybe showing up half hour after dark and an hour after dark. Um, if it, if it's too much middle of the night, I'm going to assume that I'm nowhere close to where he's living. I'm assuming he's, you know, on a neighboring property or something like that. Um, but if he's close, my assumption is that he's going to be up on his feet a lot earlier on those conditions. So yeah, the, the short answer is absolutely. I'm, I'm hunting some of my best spots where I have a good target buck living on that day. I'm not going to miss that one or hunt somewhere else. Okay. Same time of the year, middle of October and you're out there hunting. I'm going to say it's not that condition though. We're going to say kind of average temperatures for mid October, somewhere between the 15th and let's put it between the 14th and the 20th, somewhere in that window. And you're out there and you spot a mature buck and several other younger deer harassing a doe, like chasing her, the bucks, like the big boy standing around her, and you're seeing like ruddy kind of stuff happening, but it's October 16th or 17th or something like that. If you were to see that on that evening hunt, how would that change your scenario or how would that change your hunting strategy, if at all, for the next day or two? Or, or does that factor in zero because you, you're not worried about that behavior at this point? Um, it would change it from the standpoint of, okay, he, he's got to at least know that that doe is close. You know, a lot of times what you see during that time frame, or maybe even a touch earlier is the younger bucks doing it. And then I, and I never really pay attention to them, but those mature deer are almost never wrong. And those, they just, yeah. they know. Um, so if he was there standing next to that doe and run other little bucks off, I know there's something to it. And I know that he's probably going to follow her for however long. Um, so it's going to change my strategy from the standpoint of, yeah, I know where he's at. He's probably not going to go too far. What is she going to do? Is she going to be coming to this green food source? Is she, you know, and that's more or less how I'm going to hunt him is based on what, what she's going to do. Because um, my my guess is that he's not going to go too far from where she's at for a few days. Yeah. So, so give me a little more detail on the situation. Let's, let's, let's zoom forward. Say we're in November, um, when we just know it's, you know, it's on and you do spot a buck that you're after 100% locked on a doe. Like he's, he's doing all the things mm-hmm. like you just said, he's, he's scaring off every other buck. He's standing over top of her in some little pocket of brush. Um, everywhere she goes, he goes. So, you know, what's happening. Um, how do you try to kill a deer in that situation? Uh, I know some people get super aggressive in that case, and then some people actually get kind of conservative and wait f- for him to break off almost and start moving around more. Well, what do you do in that scenario? Um, 
In my experience, it is very, very tough because a lot of times that doe won't, it, it just doesn't seem like she does the normal things. Like, you know, maybe every other doe is going to still go to the food source same time, but she's mm-hmm. going to lay up in that thick cover so she can, you know, at least minimize the harassment from other deer, other bucks. Um, so that's very, very tough. I think during that time frame, I just want to be in a tree in the area because, it, you know, you obviously want to be there when he, if and when he breaks off. Um, but if I, so situational i think if if i could safely hunt a nearby food source that she could potentially drag him out to i think that's probably what i'm going to focus on um it just becomes more about hunting her like i said than it is about hunting him uh so maybe it's uh i think in the evenings that's what i'm going to do on an afternoon hunt on a morning hunt, maybe I'm going to put myself in those spots to try to catch him breaking away, um, to go find another doe. You know, maybe it's those, those good pinches or funnels or downwind side of bedding areas or whatever, but an evening hunt, I've just seen it too often where, uh, she will get antsy and need to go out and get some food and he'll be right in tow. You know, uh, we've probably all seen it. Um, so that's probably the situation I'm going to put myself in, um, just based on odds thing. And just based on my personal experience, that's probably how I'd break it down is, you know, what's the food source she's probably going to go to. Um, how can I hunt that and hope that she just, she just brings him by with her. She brings him by. She, let's say you're sitting in your evening spot. She comes out to the food source. She's got him in tow but she brings them out of range from you. So they're out there in the food source. She's feeding. He's standing there. Maybe they're, you know, let's say a hundred yards away. You're up in a tree, tons of thick cover. There's really thick brush underneath you that kind of goes all the way around this little food source. There's a couple things maybe you could do in this situation. Let's say that the wind direction and speed and cover along the edge of the field is such that you hypothetically could climb out of the tree and try to stalk on them and around the edge of that thing. You could also hypothetically call, try to pull them away. You could hypothetically do nothing at all and just wait. Um, but let's say all those things are on the table, plus anything else you can think of. What would you do in that scenario? Do you get aggressive because he's right there and he's going to be there? Or are you going to play conservative? Yeah. So I'm obviously purely going to speak on my typical hunting situation. And that is that those chances come and go, you know, very fleeting, like to have a target deer out in front of you. I don't hunt enough acres and enough unpressured ground to let him do his thing without trying something because I may not get another chance. Now, right. if I was in a, diff- a different situation where, and he's probably going to do this again in a few nights, if I don't mess it up, you know, I, maybe I would think differently, but that's not my situation. So my situation, I think first and foremost, I'm going to think about calling to him, even though it's a lot lower odds because he is with that doe, you can sometimes get them to come just a little bit. Maybe you only need him to come 25 yards and then he's in bow range. Um, 
So again, situational, I don't know how far he is in this, this scenario. But the other thing I'm considering on the calling is <clears throat> can he get downwind of me to where if he does make the big circle, am I gonna am I screwed? Because there are certain situations where I just don't call because you know every mature buck is likely gonna if he if he's committing, he's gonna come in downwind of you. And if you don't have a shot on the downwind side or before he gets to the downwind side or whatever, you have really, really, really limited your chances of that scenario playing out successfully successfully again um you know he's not gonna he's he's now been educated to that stand location and you being in that tree um but if it's thick enough cover below you he may commit just a little bit not to completely leave that doe but just to get a better look he may not be coming in for a, a full-on commitment fight type of situation where he's going to circle downwind. Um, but if you can draw him just a little bit with curiosity, and, and probably what I'm going to either try is a grunt call or snort wheeze, one of one of those two. You know, Maybe I'd start with a, a really non-aggressive grunt just to see if I can pique his curiosity, and I'd probably build it into a snort wheeze if, if that wasn't successful and just see if I can – just pull them up because you know that, that situation where you were talking about earlier when it when it's the mid October or mid to late October and he is kind of with that though but you know she's not quite in heat yet I think he's more likely to pull off of her temporarily yeah. as it as compared to you know we're talking November 11th or whatever and you know he is not letting her get a few more than a few feet away um, your chances are probably a lot lower then so. You know, obviously everything we talk about is situational, but I think that's what um what I would try in that situation. Low odds, but I'm not I'm not letting him just walk out of there. I, I, those those chances are too few and far between for me to that's just right. watch it happen. Yeah. Yeah. So. Okay. We're still in November. Let's say it's that first week of November. This is a scenario that happened to a lot of us last year. First week of November. You got your vacation time in maybe. This is it. This is your big week. And we've got like 70 degree temperatures the whole week. Hot, cruddy. Um, How does your hunting strategy change at all for that time of year? How does your approach, how does your mental game change when you're stuck with hot temperatures for your big rut trip in November? I think in general, it affects us more than it does the deer. You know, I think it's, it becomes mentally taxing on us because we just think that it's not the perfect conditions. It's, you know, we're not going to see as many deer. They're just going to lay there until dark or whatever it is. I, I think that we we paint a worse picture than it is. I think they're still going to do their thing. You know, if it's if it's noon on a hot day and he's needs to go find a doe, he's going to go find a doe. Um, you know, I think there's certain things you can do to up your odds, though, like be around water. Um, I think they obviously will, you know, tend to visit water, either water holes or creeks or whatever to to drink out of more frequently um, during those hot conditions, but. You know, if, if that's my vacation, I'm definitely not sitting it out. And and I've seen way too many big deer, and I've killed big deer on hot days to to think that I'm out of the game. Um. Okay. 
I like that. I feel the same way. I've I've gone into so many hot November periods and been like just bumming out in my head about it. Yeah. And then the deer prove the deer prove you wrong. Um, yeah. now yeah, sometimes they prove you right too. <laughs> <laughs> Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time, Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. And it's really simple. When you pour it into your gas tank, seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can into your gas tank and let it do its job. Now you probably know someone who's used a can of seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. Because people everywhere rely on it to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. So, help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. Market House has the cleanest, leanest, juiciest meat and seafood shipped to your home overnight. Expect the service of a local butcher and the convenience of a large supplier. Yeah, and Market House provides everything from grass-fed beef to free-range chicken, mm. grass-fed lamb, and even wild-caught king crab and seafood. Market House keeps small farm values, trusted sources, and clean mouth-watering food for your family. And like I said, Market House ships all orders overnight. Order today, enjoy tomorrow. And you can even keep the camo on for dinner, even if the filet mignon is on the table. With Market House, it doesn't matter because the cuts and catches come straight to your door. Unlike many online butchers, you can grab just one meal's worth or lock in for a subscription box. And everybody knows how hard it is these days to find high-quality, sustainably sourced meat and seafood at their local grocery store. Choose from grass-fed and grass-finished beef, American Wagyu, free-range poultry, grass-fed lamb, wild-caught king crab seafood, and more. For 15% off your first order, use code COUNTRY at checkout. Just visit markethouse.com. That's M-A-R-K-E-T-H-O-U-S-E dot com. And use the code COUNTRY. Let's stay with that kind of mental side of things a little bit here because I think one of the things that rang true for me a lot last year was just all the expectations we put on the rut. I think we've we've all seen so many like hunting videos and we've heard so many stories about how amazing the rut is that 
every year we go into it thinking it's going to be a slam dunk. It's going to be chaos the whole time. Um, it's going to be just like, you know, we saw in Midwest Whitetail, just like we saw on Drury's, whatever it is. Right. Um, and I think there probably are some places where it actually is like that all the time, maybe, but yeah, maybe. for most of us, for most of us, at least in my case and everything I've seen in my friends, you know, it's usually a whole lot of slower days punctuated by a few moments of that magic, you know? Yeah. Um, so let's say though, it's November 7th, which is one of those days that a lot of people point to is like maybe the best day of the entire rut in a lot of the Midwest and a lot of the country. So let's say it's right in there. And there are very high hopes for it, very high expectations. Um, should be amazing. Conditions are good. Let's say it's cold. It's in like in the 40s. The wind's just like the way you want it. Uh, maybe there's been a little bit of snow over the last couple of days early in the morning when it's a little bit colder. So it, it just should be on. But for the last three days, you've been sitting in a primo location, like a pinch point downwind of a doe bedding area kind of situation that's like you couldn't paint it any better. And it's dead. You've sat three days in great rut conditions and you don't understand it, but you're just not seeing the activity that you should. What do you do in that kind of situation where like you're for some reason, the rut seemingly is dead. It should be on. How do you address that mentally? How do you change your strategy if at all? Or do you just stick it out because you know, like eventually it'll happen. Are we talking like a big property where there's multiple locations like that? Like, you know, let's say it is a downwind side of a really good bedding area. Are we, are we talking the property is big enough to have multiple of those type of spots? Are we, are we talking about, Hey, this is your best spot based on all your scouting, all your knowledge of the property, everything. This is the best spot you have. I'd I'd be curious to hear your answer for both. Let's say there's one situation where you have other options and then one situation that is what you just described. Like this is the one spot. Yeah. I think in general, the situation you described is the rut. If I could sum it up, you're either in the game, you're out of the game and that can change Mm -hmm. on a dime anytime. So my, my short answer is I'm not going to get discouraged and think that there's something wrong with the spot if I haven't seen anything in three days. Um, However, that is extremely mentally challenging to to keep going to that spot over and over again. And so if I had other access to other spots on that property where potentially, you know, if I'm hunting a target buck, he could be at that one Um, or all the bucks in in general, there could be a hot dough over there that I have access to. It's just as good of a spot. I may pop over and try that. Um, if I'm able to, um, maybe, maybe even just for a change of scenery and a a confidence boost just to, to get me back in the game. But, um, I guess my short answer is that it's just, I've seen it so many times where you just, you, you can feel like you're so far out of the game. And then one morning it's just on fire and you see every buck within the neighborhood in that same spot that you just watched, you know, you saw three deer in five days. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> it's just, that's just the nature of the rut. That's why it can be so challenging, but it's also such a fun time when, when it does happen, it's, it kind of makes up for all the slow times, but it can be, it can be slower than, you know, that October low time frame. you know, that you were describing if, if you're just not in, yeah. in the right, just, and a lot of it's luck. It's just the, the nature of, of 
you know, where the hot does come into play and, you know, where the bucks kind of run them off to. And, you know, a lot of different factors like that that can be out of your control. But um, I guess my short answer for the question is don't just get discouraged by the spot just because of the lack of activity. Yeah. I, I think the rut is kind of like the way my wife describes pregnancy in that you, uh, <laughs> you, you know, my wife had, had one of our babies and it was like the worst thing ever. Right. So painful and so hard and all that kind of stuff. But like a few weeks later, she completely forgot about the bad stuff and only remembered the good stuff. And yeah. I think that's kind of how it there is with the rut probably for us. Right. We, we forget all those miserable long days and all we remember is like the 27 minutes that were incredible. And so when the next year yeah. rolls around, we're like, oh man, it's going to be incredible. And we just yeah. forgot about those other 15 days. Yeah, there you go. Uh, and, and But it's expectations too, like you described. It's, you know, when we think about November, we have a certain picture in our mind um, based on what we've seen or watched or whatever. Um, so the expectations can be a little bit skewed there. But uh, yeah, I, that, I agree. You can, you can quickly forget about all those slow times. Yeah. So speaking of like sit in one spot for a while, I know, I think this is correct, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think last year on November 13th, you killed a buck and you had sat that same stand for three days in a row. Correct. So I'm curious, what is the situation that has to be in place for you to sit one place for that many days in a row? Because I know you've talked about in the past liking to bounce around a decent bit. I know a lot of people, you know, like to do that for good reason then they don't want to burn out a spot um so what scenario would you like you know just like uh just just bum rush a stand over and over and over again like that two things um access and confidence in the spot so your access is probably the first thing that i would say your access has to be so good to be able to hunt a spot over and over again without decreasing the effectiveness of it or or how good of a spot it is really fast um even when you're not spooking deer you know just by hunting a spot there's some residual effect to you being there you know whether a deer comes by later that evening or the next day or two days i mean there's there's definitely some residual from you coming in and out of that spot maybe you laid your gear on the ground before you climbed up or whatever it is um, you, you're having an impact on that spot. Um, so your access up to the tree getting in from where you're parking all the way up to the tree and back out again, you know, I think sometimes people think about getting or, or forget to think about the getting out part. They can get in clean, but they, they forget about the access out and where the deer are going to be, you know, six hours later after you came in. Um, so in and out has to be the number one factor for hunting a spot over and over again. Otherwise, each time you hunt it, you're going to see fewer and fewer deer, um, and especially mature bugs. The second thing is the confidence in that spot. So that's that example that you brought up is I knew at some point that deer had to come by that tree based on the terrain based on where the primary bedding areas were. If he's checking these areas, eventually he's going to come by this spot just because of the way the creek funnels and how it was pretty much in between two of the best bedding areas I know about. Um, so my, my confidence in that, I was able to tell myself, just be in the tree, just be there. 
eventually it's going to play out. Keep keep going there as long as the wind direction's right. And I was fortunate that I had three straight days of some type of westerly wind. It, it did vary from southwest to northwest, but as long as the wind is right, you need to be in that tree um, because of my confidence in that spot. So I think those are probably the two things that I would quickly point to um, to where I'm not going to bounce around. Uh, I have enough faith that that's that's where I need to be. You killed them on day three. What, like how many more days, if you didn't kill them that day, how much more time do you think you would have given it, assuming that the wind stayed good? I would have probably kept, I probably would have kept going. I mean, maybe I would have found another spot that was a similar setup along that creek that where it pinched down and, you know, maybe he was having not seen him for four or five, six days, whatever, you know, knowing that he's around, but maybe he's just not coming by this spot. Maybe he's veering off to where I can't see him somewhere. I'd maybe adjust, but, but man, I had so much confidence that he was eventually going to walk by. Maybe he'd be slightly out of bow range, but I had so much confidence. I was eventually going to see him from that tree. So I'd like to think I would have just stuck with it um, and just, you know, just assume that maybe he was with the doe. That's why I wasn't seeing him or, you know, something. I just knew if he was searching, he was going to come by that tree. Yeah. Well, it certainly worked out the way you wanted to. <laughs> yeah. That's just, that's one of those spots. I don't, I'm not going to say every property has one, um, but probably, probably more properties than a guy thinks has one of those spots. It's just access has to be really good. Um, and that's, that's probably the biggest challenge that most guys face is being able to get in and out clean enough that you're not affecting the quality of the hunting. Yeah. All right. December. We're now in the late season. And let's say you still haven't filled your tag yet. And for whatever reason, you have lost access to any of your properties that have ag on them or food plots. So you're stuck hunting properties that are just timber, old fields, swamp, grass, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Basically, I'm trying to put you in a situation that, you know, most very, people very would not want, right? Because yeah. December is when we all want to hit, we want to hunt those standing food sources or whatever. But let's say you just don't yeah. have that. What would you try to do in that scenario to get a deer killed? So the, and I've been in these situations before. You know, when it comes to the the late season, and especially here in Iowa, that early December through mid-December time frame is probably the most pressure the deer face all season. It's the, the two and a half weeks of shotgun season where everyone's out pushing them around, just nonstop pressure, and they're moving to the best cover that they have that time of year. And there's not much of it, obviously, being late season, but they're finding those areas where they're not disturbed and they're pretty much going to stay in those spots um, through the end of the season here in Iowa, the end of the season is January 10th. So a deer, especially a mature buck is cover. I think, I think uh, is probably higher priority than easy access to food. I think a deer will travel a long ways, even if it's after dark to get to that food and they'll be back in the safety of cover before daylight. But if, uh, if that cover that's a mile away or half mile away is the best cover, 
um, and, and a lot better cover than the stuff that's adjacent to the, the feeding area. I still think they're going to be in that cover. So I'm going to look for areas like that. You know, I don't have the food, but maybe I'm going to have the cover. Maybe I'm going to have some of those little pockets that, that didn't get disturbed or those pockets that the deer potentially moved into during those pressure uh, days or weeks of the, of the gun season. So um, long distance scouting and trail cameras are probably going to be my two best friends with regards to finding those spots and finding the deer in those spots. Um, and then it's just, uh, then it's just uh, the challenge of figuring out how to get to them and how to um, catch the deer coming out of them. You know, it, you usually can guess where the nearest food source is, even if you don't have access to it. You know, maybe you can drive right before before uh, dark and see all the does that are out there. You know, that's probably where he's going to be going at some point. Um, but if you can get close enough to that thick cover, you'll have a good chance of, of catching him in the daylight, especially if he has a, a decent ways to go probably going to get up and at least start moving around somewhat early, even if he doesn't hit the opening until after dark. So that's, that's probably how I'd play that situation. I can't think of any specific examples um, to go off of, but uh, I've certainly had that. I mean, I have, I haven't always had access to properties where I could, you know, plant food or, or do anything like that. So um, it's, it's a common scenario. Let's let's flip it a little bit and give you the food back. So let's say you now have properties with crops, um, but let's say that you were after. Let's let's bring back our mega giant buck. Let's say he he was around all year. Now you hunted him all fall, never could catch up with him, and then during gun season, someone kills him finally. So he gets killed during that December gun season. And now you've, you devoted the last two and a half months or whatever to that deer. Now you're picking up the pieces and have to like start from square one. And let's say now you have to find a new deer to target. It's late season. Um, is it just kind of what you just described, but now you're glassing fields and putting cameras on fields to try to find something new? Or what does that specifically look like when you are now hunting, you know, like you just said, very pressured deer? And you're trying to kind of refigure them out because you've been ignoring everything else as you were focused on this one deer elsewhere. Um, what does that look like now? But I still have the food in this, or I do have the food in this scenario. You do have food in this scenario. So if you do have the food, you still got to have the cover, obviously, like, like the scenario I just laid out. Um, the reason I end up hunting a lot of times on the food source during late season is because it, it gets too hard to access anything else. You know, all the foliage is gone, the deer pressured. A lot of times they're, they're kind of grouped up and there's, you have a lot of, a lot of eyes and ears and noses in a small area compared to earlier in the season. Earlier in the season, I'd prefer almost to not be, I, you know, I spend a lot of time planting food plots for myself and for other guys. I haven't killed that many deer on the food plots in my career you know a lot of times i think the biggest benefit well a couple things i love food plotting just because it's you know i love seeing things grow i love the experimentation of it um all that type of stuff but the the primary hunting benefit for me is just keeping the deer around and and on or near the property 
for a longer period of time in the season as opposed to not having the food and they have to go somewhere else to find it. Um, but I'd still always rather hunt them going to or from it if I can. But late season, I tend to be on the food just because it's hard to get into those other spots. Um, but yeah, finding the deer in that case, if I'm starting over to find the deer, I'm, I'm obviously going to have cameras on the food source and and just watch them you know try to find a spot where you can see long ways maybe it's multiple food sources maybe you have a cornfield you can watch and a bean field you can watch you know whether it's picked standing doesn't matter they're all they're all good food sources at that time frame um but yeah because of the way i hunt i'm, I'm still gonna want to find a deer to go after and not just uh not just sit a random food source hoping something comes out that i want to shoot so let's say you spot him. You spot one. You're like, oh yeah, that's that's one. I'll I'll take a stab at. Um, let's say you have a decent number of other bow hunters still around this area. So you find one. You found a pocket where these deer deer still feel safe, but you know, like eh, there's going to be other guys in and around here still. So this isn't. This might not stay a secret forever. Um, and now we're down to those final days of the season. Let's, let's push it later into the late season. We're down to maybe you've got like I don't know, seven to 10 days left of the season. You find one, you know, there's a chance other guys are going to be in and around here. I know a lot of us, at least I'm assuming you, maybe not, but I'm assuming you would love there to be a big cold front or some snow or something coming in that like make it very likely he's going to come out. But let's say that's not in the forecast at all. And we're just not seeing that yet. Uh, are you going to keep waiting and waiting and waiting and hope that happens before the last day of the season? Or are you going to start taking a swing because you have to, because the season's running out and there's also other guys that might be poking in this weekend when that comes up too. Yeah, for sure. Taking a swing. I mean, it, if you don't with a few days left, you're, you're almost just saying, Hey, I'll get them next year. And there's so much that can happen between you know, yeah. then and your next opportunity that again, it's just, I don't have that type of situation where I could just throw my hands up and, and, and throw in the towel. But I think specifically what I would do is probably try to get closer some way, somehow, whether it's, even if it's having to hunt on the ground, um, get closer to where he is, Entering the food source, get closer to where he's leaving the bedding area. Um, whatever it is, you have to get aggressive there. At least in my eyes, you have to just because your your chances of, of that happening in the last few days by sitting and not being aggressive is just seems it would have already happened likely if, if you're if it's going to you know just sitting in the same spot or watching from a distance hoping he's eventually going to come into bow range um so yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna get aggressive there whether it's moving stand locations or hunting from the ground um even even potentially trying a morning hunt you know that that'd be something that maybe guys don't think about during the late season is it's it's evening it's evening it's evening but maybe you can get in super early through the back door and just be in there waiting for him. And and maybe you don't beat him in, but maybe he gets up, you know, mid-morning to stretch his legs and mosey around a little bit, or maybe he switches bedding locations based on a, a wind switch or something. Um, so I'm going to try to get creative on what I could do to make it happen those last few days. 
you mentioned liking to hunt those evenings, you know, on the food or right around that stuff. What's your, what's your approach? Now I know every property, every situation is going to be different. Um, but what kinds of things work for you for exit strategies, you know, on the food, late season, a lot of deer out there hunting on the food is really hard. Um, especially the, you know, you get a crunchy snow or crunchy leaves. It's cold out. Um, it's hard to beat the eyes, let alone the ears too. Um, what kinds of things have you found work in that, you know, harder, about as hard as it gets as far as the exit on food would be the late season exits, unless you have, you know, the car or someone driving up, that kind of thing. Yeah. What kind of things have you found to work? So I lost you for a few seconds just to make sure I, have, I got you back at the end. So are you asking about how, <clears throat> what, what have I seen to get out of tricky situations late season to start getting out at night? Yeah. If you're hunting close to the food, how are you exiting safely without destroying the whole thing? Yeah. <clears throat> very, very tough. Um, I'd say more often than not, if I'm in a situation, I try to not put myself in those situations by, you know, creating a good entry exit spot. You know, maybe I have a screen, um, you know, covering the food source in my hunting location that I can, when I climb down, I'm out of sight. Or maybe it's a, a hill that I'm coming down the backside, or maybe my stand drops right down to a ditch, whatever it is. Um, but certainly that's not always the case. I have um, shot does before, you know, to clear the field. Um, just shoot a doe that's close by, and a lot of times the, the rest of the deer don't really know what happened. I'd way rather, rather have all the deer run off because of a noise and all the other deer running, then them sit there and watch me climb down from a tree or climb out of a blind. Yeah. Um, so as long as I have an easy way of getting her in and out, you know, maybe I have, you know, I, I like using um, an electric four wheel um, UTV or E quad to be pretty quiet. If, if I have that part clear by, I can shoot her and make a good shot. Maybe it's a close shot. I know she's not going to go far. I can get in, hook onto her and get out of there quick. Um, before and a lot of times a deer will be back in that plot in half an hour, you know, they're, they're not bothered by it. Um, other times I'm just forced to wait until well after dark and then just go really slow from there and just kind of take your chances. Um, there's, you know, sometimes if you just don't have good exit, you're, you're, you're just doing the least amount of damage, kind of taking the lesser of, of two evils. And for me, I've, deer seem to relax a lot after dark it seems like you get away you know either after dark or before daylight you can get away with a lot more um and that tends to be the case sometimes i'll wait hour hour and a half after dark where i can't even you know see my hand in front of my face and then i'll just go really slow and try to try not to make noise um and you know a lot of times i think the the deer aren't bothered at all you know they they may or may not be able to see you i don't know but they uh they don't seem to act the same um as they do in the daylight in terms of spooking so those are probably the main things if i get stuck in a situation like that yeah it's always a doozy Um, i've I've, I've tried the coyote coyote calls or howling with your mouth um sometimes that works but you're still drawing attention to where you're at um you know you know even if they may, you may get lucky and they think it actually is a coyote. It still is that spot you're hoping to go to tomorrow night, you know? So I, yeah. I don't love that one. And sometimes they just look at you and 
you may, you're not close enough to scare them anyway, yeah. so they just keep feeding. And you, you sound so awful. They're looking yeah, up in the that, tree and well, saying, look at that idiot human. Yeah, that's, that's reality probably. Uh-huh. Yeah. All right, man. Well, you made it through the gauntlet. You survived. Awesome. Um, great, great insight there. I've got one last thing for you, which is like the rapid fire session where I'm going to ask you a series of quick questions and you have to answer with a one word answer. Effectively, you can't explain yourself. You just have to give me your first quick gut instinct answer to these. Um, and then followed by one normal question after that. So okay. you good for that? Let's do it. All right. So would you take a 50-yard shot at a whitetail with a bow? Yes or no? It's situational, but I'm just going to go with no. Okay. If you could only have one of these tools for the rest of your hunts, for the rest of your life, you can only pick one of these, which one would you pick? Would it be a grunt tube or a set of rattling antlers? Grunt tube. Expandable or fixed blade broadheads? Again, situational, but I'm going to go fixed blade. Okay. Should you stop a buck with some kind of sound before shooting if it's, you know, walking? Yes or no? If it's walking... I'm going to go yes. Does the moon matter for deer movement? Yes or no? Yes. All right. Here's the lengthier one. (laughs) Let's say that I rule the world and I have control over your hunting privileges for the rest of your life. And I am going to take away your hunting license in Iowa and any other state you could want to go to forever. Mm -hmm. Unless you can kill a five and a half year old, like, you know, a shooter buck, the buck that you would shoot in Iowa, um, whatever that might be, a big giant deer that you would shoot. You have to kill a deer of that caliber this year. If you don't kill that deer this year, you lose your privileges forever. If you do kill that deer, you get to keep on hunting forever. Here's the thing, though. I'm only going to give you one day to kill that buck. You get one day and you get to pick one stand location. So tell me what date on the calendar you would pick for this day. And then describe for me, this can either be an actual tree stand location or place you've actually hunted, or this can be like a a hypothetical make-believe perfect situation that you'd want for that date. So tell me the date you're going to pick and paint me a picture of what that best possible stand site could be to get this buck killed in this very, very high pressure situation. That's a tough one. One quick clarifying question. Is this any shooter buck or is this a specific shooter buck? I'll let it be. We'll let it be any shooter buck, but I am curious if you had to pick a specific shooter buck, how that would change this. Cause that's interesting to me too. It may not change it a ton, and I'll give you two kind of answers on this. One, probably the one I'm going to pick for this question because I don't want you taking away my hunting rights forever. <laughs> so I'm going to pick probably the less fun scenario, but the more effective okay. scenario. Um, it's probably going to be that late season hunt on food. You know, let's say yeah. January 5th snow cold weather the deer just have to feed they have to feed they have to feed early it's high pressure you know everything we talk about i think your odds are so high that every deer is going to be in that food source in daylight 
uh, every deer that's living near that food source is going to be there. Um, it's not what I would pick if I was, you know, just wanting the the most fun, most exciting hunt. I, if, if I'm going that direction and I want, I, but it's still any buck, like I still just need to kill any five and a half year old deer. I'm going to pick, um, let's say November, I'll go a little bit later. I'll go like November 16th. Um, you know, kind of on the backside of that where the deer are really starting to search for those last few does or maybe even November 18th, a little bit later, but I'm going to, you know, pick a really good, uh, a pinch that's obviously going to give me a good chance at a bow range shot, um, that's close to doe bedding areas and, and areas that those deer are going to keep search- seeking. I think that's a lot more fun hunt, but still high odds, just not quite high odds, uh, high enough odds compared to the late season need to feed type of hunt. Um, as far as the individual buck versus any mature buck, yeah, any mature, I'm not going to take, if I'm trying to kill an individual buck, I'm not going to pick that November day. I'm for sure going to go late season or potentially my next option might be late October, perfect conditions um cold front high pressure all that type of stuff for that individual that one specific target buck so for that january 5th hunt you said you know by food cold snowy day what would like that perfect stand site be though you know how how would you like and that's that's bow season for you guys too right so how would you set up perfectly you know a lot a lot of big late season food sources can be hard with a bow because they're big a big bean field or something um, right. how'd you get it done from that scenario? <clears throat> that goes way back to your initial design stages on the, on the food plot and how it sets up. You know, a lot of times if you're, if you're in a bigger field <clears throat> that is obviously too big to just bow on, you can't cover the whole thing. Most likely still the deer are going to enter and exit, or let's just say enter. Cause that's normally what you're, you're playing off of they're still going to enter in specific spots. Maybe it's one area, maybe it's two areas, whatever. It's, it's not like they're coming from 360 degrees around that. Um, so in that case, you know, a lot, a lot of times I'll try to maybe set up the plot to where it's narrow and then expands out because you, you can't just have one super long, narrow plot that's going to provide enough food to last till January 5th. Um, yeah. but you need something that's going to keep them by that. So that, you know, different things that I've, I've done or tried or have helped other people set up would be that situation where it's narrow at first and you're almost letting the deer work by you and then, you know, out into the bigger part. And that allows you to normally sneak out, um, back that other way too. That's one, or you can have either L shaped where you're on the, the corner of the L a lot of times deer will, you know, to see what other deer are in, in the plot or whatever, they're, they're eventually going to come by that middle point, or you can, you know, hourglass it to where it pinches them down in the middle, different things like that. Um, other scenarios, if you're not lucky enough to design the shape of it would be, you know, scrape posts out within bow range, even late in the season like that, there's still a good chance those deer are at least going to just come check it out out of curiosity. Yeah. Um, just says more of a scent check or whatever. <clears throat> um, other thing you could do is maybe overseed. Let's say it, it is a grain field. 
you could potentially overseed some some greens, whether it be cereal grains or brassicas or something, into a spot that is in bow range. So you have this big field, but you know deer are naturally browsers. So a lot of times they'll they'll feed in the grain, they'll come get a bite of green, you know they'll they'll kind of go back and forth, um, but put something there. Um, another one would be you have a big, let's say, soybean field, and you go in in August and you till up you know, strips, maybe there's spokes of a wheel that all come back and meet to where your hunting location is, whether it's a blind or a tree stand. Um, eventually they're going to hit those and kind of use those as, as travel paths. Um, so a lot, a lot of different things you can do. It's just, it's pretty situational and I'd probably look at a spot each time and, you know, try to decide what's best for that particular spot. Uh, but a lot of things you can do to try to get a deer to eventually be within bow range at some point in that evening um, to work past your, your standard blind. I like your plan. I think you get it done. Um, it's, it's a nightmare scenario kind of, but also also, like when I listen to people's answers, especially like yours, when you, when you're talking through all the different things you could do, it would in a weird way, it would be a pretty fun challenge just to take, you know, to have like, hundreds of days of work to try to fine tune down to just one day to execute. It, it would yeah. be an interesting challenge to try to pull off. Um, I think you should do it. Stacking every little thing. You think I should do it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I guess I should, uh, should, uh, taste the poison I've been sending out to everyone. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I would, I would watch that series. Uh, it, it would be that fun, especially like, it'd be cool if you gave, uh, like some type of deadline to a guy to where he had to pick, either the yeah. property or the deer he had to kill on that day and, and see how it changes, like how much additional scouting he does, how many more observation sits he does like leading up to that date. Um, that would be pretty cool. Yeah, it would. Yeah. That is, is a really good idea. Um, I'm not volunteering, but it would, it would be. Yeah. <laughs> you just wouldn't want to sacrifice all those days hunting or no. Another thing I thought about too, would be like, what if you restricted people to like, Hey, uh, you can only hunt October and you have to get it all done in October or you can only hunt November and you can't. So how would that change your strategy and your scouting and all your plans? Like if you were pushed into different parts of the season too. Um, I would love to see it because I, I think, uh, and I'm not saying people are, are, are lying, but I think the way we talk about it, it would be interesting to see if you actually had to do it, if that backed up what you thought in your head you would do. Cause I, I bet more yeah. often than not, it'd be different. I, I think it's easier yeah. to talk about than you are forced to do it. You may do things completely differently. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine like if you had no November to be kind of using as a crutch, you know, knowing that November's coming and you just had October, I mean, you'd be taking some big swings. You'd be, yeah. it'd be really interesting. And there's um, certain situations where that may be more effective for a guy. I mean, you know, it, it would it would not yeah. be fun in a situation where you have multiple tags and you still can't hunt November. But for guys that have one tag, you know, very limited spots to hunt, you know, maybe it would serve them better to be more aggressive early on. You know, yeah. it, it could be a better situation. So that'd be pretty cool. It would be interesting. Well, uh, Jared, this is uh this has been fun. I enjoyed it. Really, really good insight you shared there. And uh, it's got me even more jacked up than I was beforehand, yeah. which is hard to hard to believe because I'm pretty amped. Yeah. Um, man, you had a hell of a season last year. You killed like a 194 inch buck, I think, a 170, which is like a dream deer for me. With like matching flyers off the twos, I think it was or yeah. the threes, something like that. Yeah. Um, then another big old late season buck. 
do you feel like you can match it this year? Do you feel like no? Uh, no. <laughs> do no. You, okay, I mean, you can't match it. Do you have? Do you feel like uh, across your new farm? I mean, that's not not new anymore. But across your home farm or your other permissions and things like that, you feeling optimistic about what's coming up, or where do things stand? Yeah, I am. Um, I'm super excited. Like a lot of times it gets back to what we were talking about in the beginning, you know, just, just there were times where this time of year, I was still so stressed about what had to be done and what now I'm a little bit past that to where I'm very excited just to get out and then get in a tree stand again and, and enjoy it. Um, I think there's, there's certainly potential, there's good prospects around, but regardless, I'm, I'm just super excited just to be back in a tree and hunting and, and chasing some of these deer and, um, yeah, things are looking good. It seems like it's this, this, my, most of my properties aren't great summer properties, so I don't have a ton of really good ones on camera yet, but they're slowly but surely starting to show up. These next 30 days for me, um, are always really good as far as deer popping back in for the first time. They start to make a few excursions here and there before moving back in full time, you know, later in September, early October. Um, but this is the time frame where I get to see them for the first time. Um, they may pop in and, you know, maybe it's just for a night, but at least get to see what they look like this year. Cool. Well, that's exciting. Yeah. Well, where can people follow along with all this, Jared? Where can they see the past videos and, and any other new things you've got coming up this fall? Yeah. <clears throat> the, the primary spot is just the YouTube channel, just the Jared Mills YouTube channel. I'm going to start really ramping up the content here over the next few weeks as I start to prepare for the season. And then of course, um, the hunts will be on there. Um, you can follow along on social media. I'm not super active on there. Uh, YouTube's probably the best best place. But um, yeah, I mean, I I love interacting with guys. I love helping. I love hearing about different scenarios, hearing about good stories, all that type of stuff. So you know, anybody's more than welcome to reach out at any time. I'm not the the greatest at timely responses, but uh, eventually I will get back and you know, I, I enjoy talking with everybody. So. Wait, well, none of us are good at that last thing. So yeah. <laughs> you're not alone there. That's hard to do. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm excited to see what happens. I'll be crossing my fingers and toes for you, Jared. Best of luck and thanks for doing this. Awesome. Thanks for the invite. Best of luck to you and, and everybody out there. All right. And that is a wrap. Thanks for tuning in. I appreciate it. If you're down in Missouri and if you're listening to this right when it comes out, I hope to see you. Saturday, August 12th for our Working for Wildlife Tour event. And if not, happy scouting, shooting, prepping, whatever it is you're doing right now leading into the season. Hope it's going well. Hope you're having fun. And until next time, stay wired to hunt. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. 
They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. 